When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1985, and we'll be talking about The Unwomanly Face of War by Svetlana Alexeyevich. I'll be talking with Megan Buskey, the author of Ukraine is Not Dead Yet, A Family History of Exile and Return, which is coming out in February of this year, so really soon. Uh, She was a Fulbright Scholar in Ukraine and has written for The Atlantic, American Scholar, and the New York Times Book Review, among other publications. Um, One way or another, she's been studying the former Soviet Union for about 20 years. (sighs) And for a summary of this book, it is almost deceptively easy to summarize because it's an oral history of women who served as Soviet soldiers in World War II. Um, And there are chapters made of paragraph-length reminiscences from each of these women, Um, They recall how they felt as they enlisted and how they thought about fighting and what they saw and what they did and how the war went. Um, In some ways, it's very similar to any other set of soldiers' accounts of war. And in other ways, it's very particular and unusual book. Um, But we're going to get into all that in our conversation. So here we are. So, Megan, I'm really grateful to you for doing this and I'm grateful to you for choosing this book because I would never in a million years have read it mm-hmm. especially getting through the first I think the first 10 pages was mm-hmm. maybe some of the most disturbing stuff I've ever read mm. why did you choose this book yeah I think that's an interesting question um so I chose this book because I think it's an interesting it's an interesting book to to think about at this moment as you know Russia's in the midst of this terrible invasion of Ukraine. I think it tells us some things about um, how Russia thinks about its history, um, particularly during the Soviet period, and knowing that can help us understand a little bit more how Putin is framing the war in Ukraine. Um, and we, so we can get into all of those elements if you'd like. Um, yeah, no, I want to, I want to get into all the elements. Uh, the, uh, in some ways I felt like reading it, it, it seemed like some experiences of war were so universal. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that, you know, it's a bunch of like 17 year olds who think that it's all going to be over in four months and they're all excited to enlist. Mm-hmm. And then the amount that like just any social structure that would prevent any level of depravity and just harm and terror is just gone. And um, just the most disturbing, awful things you can imagine are just happening everywhere to everyone all the time um, for years. And uh So in some ways, it it seemed like there's an interesting layering that the book does of things that seemed almost universal as experiences of war from, you know, civilian slash ground soldier experiences to things that were very specific, as you said, like specifically Soviet, specifically Russian, Mm -hmm. and specifically female, because, you know, after all, it's a book about women. Um, so anyway, I'm interested. I'm interested in your thoughts about both what seemed universal about it and what seemed really particular. And since you started with the particular, we can start with the particular. Yeah. So I think the the reason that it's it's sort of illustrative to me about something sort of special about Russia and special about the Soviet experience is that I think the history of World War II is kind of conceived of and experienced in a very different way in the former Soviet Union than it is in the United States. So in the United States, predominantly, I think the story of World War II is primarily a story about the Holocaust Um, in the Soviet Union for a variety of reasons. In the Soviet Union, the Holocaust is 
now something of an, an aspect of the story, but it is, I would still say not the predominant one. It is just one of many aspects of the story that people tell themselves about World War II. Um, and I think that has to do in part because of the vastly different experiences that Americans had and then people in Eastern Europe had. Um, you know, in the United States, Less than 500,000 people died during World War II. You know, the territory of the U.S. was largely untouched. In the Soviet Union, more than 25 million people died. And, you know, vast parts of the, the Soviet empire were just completely destroyed. Um, and so, and I, th I think one of the things that she does very powerfully at the beginning is lay out how much of an impact that had on the Soviet psyche. Um, yeah. you know, she yeah. talks about... You know, obviously, Svetlana Alexeyevich was born after the war, but she talks about the fact that it was, you know, the war was always something that was discussed at sort of every significant life occasion you could have at, at weddings, at funerals, at graduations. Um, and it was in part because, like, it, it was this just horrible kind of communal experience of suffering that people had that was inescapable for decades. And I think to some extent even continues to be inescapable. Um, just, you know, going, you know, as I've done like a, a lot of, you know, research and interviews with people of, you know, who are now in their 80s and 90s, and it's just everybody in, in you know, Ukraine predominantly, but everybody had just like a terrible experience <laughs> during that time. I mean, nobody was spared. Um, and so I think this book is very, very helpful and in, in allowing particular particularly Americans um, to understand a little bit of what that of what that experience was like. Um, and then similarly, and I think she gets into this also, you know, very well, you know, how the Soviet systems sort of used that experience of war, um, particularly, you know, this great victory of the of Soviet citizens over Nazi Germany, how it was used to, I don't know, prove the sort of moral superiority of the Soviet Union, or at least establish its sort of moral um, bona fides. And I think, you know, now it's, it's Putin is, is using the history of the Second World War to some extent in terms of justifying his current invasion of Ukraine. And he's drawing on, you know, obviously in a very explicit way, the history in terms of trying to pay, paint the Ukrainian government as being, you know, neo-Nazis or whatever. Yeah. Obviously, that's like patently absurd. But I think he's also trying to appeal to what's still present in the Russian psyche of this idea that, you know, Russia or the Soviet Union was was a force for for more for unimpeachable moral good in the Second World yeah. War, which was how the Soviet system kind of depicted it, you know, depicted the victory over the war. And so he's trying to sort of structure this invasion of Ukraine in a similar way that Russia's going to go in and take over, sort of save Ukraine. Um, and so I think that's also extremely important for us to to understand about what, you know, how he's trying to use, you know, use this narrative. Um, obviously he's drawing on other narratives as well, but that's why I think, you know, the particulars are, are, are especially compelling with this book right now. Well, so I wanted to go into that idea of moral good, because I think that there's, I mean, obviously, in the US, the idea of um, the Second World War is, is like heavily coded with morality, the idea that there's like, the most evil evil and the most good good are both sort of present in that conflict and that, that it's sort of like a um a reassurance after world war one that war can be moral and yeah. it can be necessary and it can be important and that you can feel good about yourself for what you're doing at war mm -hmm. um and but i think there's two threads in the u.s version of that um, that I that I didn't necessarily see in this book, and I'm curious if you did. One mm -hmm. thread is the idea that it's a pluralistic society that we're fighting for. That mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, I think that um, some post-war, uh, I guess the phrase that comes to mind is like "Age of Aquarius" in the U.S. 
like the idea that we should live in a pluralistic society, that some of that comes, it comes from defining ourselves as in opposition to a enemy that was in favor of racial cleansing. Mm. Um, so there, there's like that side of it. And then I also think that um, like after World War One, it seems like there was a lot of questioning of gender roles um, and saying like, well, you know, if this is what traditional masculinity got us into, what else can we do? And, mm-hmm. you know, men were wearing soft pink collars and writing books about falling in love with each other and stuff like that. Um, that, that that was one way that, you know, a lot of the literature of World War One is very queer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the ways that people seem to talk about World War Two is like a resurgence of men feeling good about doing traditionally masculine things and that that's like for mm-hmm. justice, it's protective, it's not, you know, fundamentally harmful. Um, which I think was, I mean, some number of people, I don't want to say everyone believed this about anyone. I'm, I'm just thinking about like the broad narratives that I think come up in American understanding of World War II that didn't seem present in this book. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that there was an, a sense of the goodness of what they were doing didn't seem based on an idea of a pluralistic society at all. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the feeling that they were, I mean, it's right there in the title. It's an unwomanly thing that they're doing by being foot <laughs> soldiers. Um, and they're kind of proud of themselves, but also really devastated to be giving up their their beauty their potential marriageability but they're also you know having all of these soldierly experiences it just it I mean I think that like the U.S. didn't have female foot soldiers and snipers the way that Russia did and I'm, I'm just curious about how you like, what do you know about how that made them feel like they were doing the right thing being Soviets? Like the moral good feeling. Like, do, do you think that the fact that they. Well, the mo- yeah, the Soviet Union was 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 not a pluralistic society. I mean, yeah. I mean, just it's a complicated it's a kind of a complicated question. I mean, in because ultimately, like you know, Marxist ideology was sort of trying to liberate, you know, society from, from religion, from class, from, um, from ethnicity, et cetera. And, you know, that I think was seen as sort of the culmination of what the Soviet project could be. Um, And there was some sort of tacit understanding that there were, there, you know, were, we're not at that place yet. And so there were these, you know, certain allowances made for, you know, ethnic identity and, um, you know, religious identity to some extent. Um, but, uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a democratic society, certainly in practice that they were, they were moving towards. I think in this book though, I think, and I think we see a little bit of some hints of it that people, weren't really sure exactly how things were going to go after the war ended. Um, so obviously the, the lead up to the war had been very difficult. You know, Stalin had been extremely repressive in, in the thirties. And there was certainly a sense that, you know, you had to stay within certain bounds um, as a member of society. I think there was some, it, I don't remember exactly like an anecdote from the book that um that is making me think that this is the case, but um, mm-hmm. I I remember a few hints of like just sort of feeling like the, it's just a certain amount of of lack of clarity of what would would come. Um, you know, I think there was a, a powerful vignette at the end about a man who returns, who had been a woman is recounting the story of her husband returning to the war from the war, and he's back for just a day or two, and then he's taken away, he's arrested again. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And sent to the gulag because he had been a Soviet prisoner, or he had been in, um, a German prisoner of war. Um, and that there, in that story, I recall there being just you know some surprise that that was to happen. They weren't kind of cl- 
certainly clear that that um, was going to be how things would be moving forward. Um, and so, yeah, but I think, I mean, you, it, it would sort of depend on who you would ask about this question of pluralism. Um, I think there were certainly a lot of residents of the former Soviet Union at the time after the war who were very displeased by Soviet the Soviet occupation and felt it to be, you know, felt the imposition of a totalitarian regime very quickly. Yeah. Um, and there were others that I think were more open to the Soviet project and sort of maybe not exactly pluralism, but at least a kind of um, a system maybe in which like, you know, pluralism wouldn't even be necessary, however that might occur. Yeah. But you can also feel those layers. I think, you know, you, you said like <laughs> that, that the Soviet hope is one where religious identity or ethnic identity would be obsolete. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also see the layers of, you know, they, they simultaneously want, um, you know, they want these girls, these young women to be soldiers, but they also, they aren't buying boots. Like there aren't boots that fit their smaller feet. So they have to wear, they have to like wrap their feet. And then um, I, I thought that the, all the anecdotes about, their clothes and the fact that there weren't like standard issue underwear for women and there weren't like boots that were the right size for their feet and stuff. I found them just very sad and very touching, like Mm -hmm. that they're simultaneously, they're just like every other soldier in their hearts in some ways. And then in other ways, they know that like, if they're injured, it's going to mean that, you know, they wouldn't be marriageable like that there's there isn't like a narrative a cultural narrative for them to fit into even if everyone is allowing this to happen you know and and benefiting from their skills and their ability to mm-hmm. you know to fight and everything and um i think that it is like it it makes sense as something that's happening in a society that is so new to some of these practices that they don't know how it's like what does a what is a veteran like in 50 years if she was fighting when she was 21? Um, but it's like, we have narratives for old soldiers who are men. They're not great narratives. You know, it's, it's not like those narratives are ones that people would want to take over. Mm-hmm. But we kind of know what a soldier is if it's a man. And I right. thought it was, I mean, obviously that's the point of writing this. This is like her project was what is a soldier if it's a woman? Mm-hmm. you know 40 mm-hmm. years later how many years later is it it's like 40 years later right yeah uh actually it's 30 I think she did mm-hmm. she started the research in the late 70s oh yeah okay I'm thinking of when right. the book came out yeah yeah no I mean I think the the angle about sort of gender identity and femininity I mean yeah I mean is there's a lot of elements of that that are heartbreaking um but there are but they're also very interesting and I think revealing in their own ways and um there is a lot of discussion about clothes and sort of like you know your your sort of general comportment as a woman and how that was sort of taken away from these these women during the war um but I think it 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 shows something about again the complexity of this project. Like on on the face of it, it you know when the, this book came out, it was published in as a book. I think in 1985, yeah, um, it did very well in the Soviet Union. Um, it was very popular. It sold millions of copies, and I think the reason that that happened was because it sort of allowed for, it gave space for a dimension of the experience of the Second World War, which wasn't really permitted in in the Soviet Union, or at least was drowned out by this, you know, the kind of hollow rhetoric of the great victory and, um, you know, these, you know, the, the wonderful kind of um, moral achievements of the Soviet Union during the war. Um, so it, it was... It was quite, um, it was quite popular. Yeah, so there was um, an interest in telling a 
uh, a, you know, it was, it was trying to sort of unseat the predominant, um, you know, the predominant narrative about the war, but it also, it actually doesn't entirely do that. It kind of replicates some of the Soviet approach to thinking about the war. And I think one of the ways in which it does that is in its discussion of, of gender, but also you see it, I think, in in the fact that there's there's very little discussion of the Jews in this book. I mean, virtually nothing. There's there's very, very few instances of discussion of of sexual violence. I was gonna book. mention that there's basically like shockingly little discussion right. of sexual violence or like pregnancy, honestly. Right. As a right. possibility of something that could happen. Right. Yeah. And I think there's no discussion of sexual violence directed towards female soldiers. I think the only time it's discussed, it's when it's when they talk about the Soviet soldiers that were raping German women, which was a, a horrible and widespread phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't know why that's not more widely included. I can imagine that it must have been extraordinarily difficult to get women to talk about those experiences. But I also wonder if there's some sort of kind of mindset on the part of Alexeyevich that like maybe she could she couldn't she couldn't go there in the same way that she in her discussion of gender, I think she has a very strong idea of what it of what a woman is. And she sort of defines it very much in these kind of what I think we think of now as sort of normative terms. And so she's kind of attracted to point, bringing those things out in people's stories. But then it's sort of, you know, something that's more queer is, I think there's a couple of instances where we hear, get a little bit of a touch of it, but it's largely neglected. And, you know, to some extent that's understandable given when this book was written and, you know, was, we have a very different dialogue about that stuff now, but I think it, I think you're right, especially given the historical context. I was thinking there's a few topics that she avoids to the extent that it's like, there must be some taboo mm-hmm. because like the number of women that are like, I was completely faithful to my husband who was, you know, at the prison labor camp or you know it's like I or I was just in love with this one boy back home and I never looked at another man the whole time like sexual violence any kind of um sleeping around or like you know any kind of prostitution any kind of unintended pregnancy or abortion like a lot of things that might make the women seem less like everyone's little sister who's like really plucky and chaste. Mm-hmm. Um, there was none of it. It was like, everyone is like a good wife. Um, and if she's not a good wife, she's just like everyone's little sister. Um, and it, it just seems impossible to me. It seems impossible that that's, that that's actually the experience these women these women had, and I understand that there might have been really strong taboos against saying, "Yes, I had a boyfriend and I was in love with him," or "I had a boyfriend and I wasn't in love with him," or you know, I hadn't just any of the things you know any of the things that I just listed. It's like um, I. there's like a character that as you said it's like it's somewhat what she pulls forward but there's some way in which it feels like even though it's many women telling their stories there's really only one woman and she has a very consistent voice yeah and she is kind of pure and brave and true and in one version of her life you know she never marries and remains a virgin and another version of her life, she's a widow and she's carrying her four-year-old through a swamp for, you know, just devastating journeys that, that these people are describing, you know. But in some ways, they, the way that Alexeyevich is having them talk about it, reporting them talking about it, it's like there's always this sort of this certain spirit of like 
purity and pluckiness. Yeah. And it just, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, because sometimes people do cut, like the whole society can be like pure and plucky for a while. Like it may be that that actually is how they sort of describe themselves to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like everyone in the early 2000s was like optimistic and entrepreneurial, you know? And it's right. like a certain feeling that like, like we could kind of fix things that were wrong with society. Um, like I think it, like in some ways I could imagine just having experienced certain optimistic eras in my own culture. I can mm-hmm. imagine that they could have all actually felt some version of something or like spoken to each other in a way that brought out this one sort of spirit. Right. At the time. But it's hard to imagine that they would all still feel the same way 30 right. years ago. Yeah. And I think that kind of introduces like uh, an interesting, you know, set of issues around Alexeyevich's methods. Um, so, you know, these, the, this book is sort of just, you know, it's cataloged as nonfiction, you know, the testimonies included are sort of are described as being oral histories. But if you listen to how she describes her work, she actually describes it differently. She, um, I think, talks about herself as, you know, as an artist, and she describes her work as being sort of novels and novels of voices or novels and voices. Um, And I think, you know, there's been some very, some interesting scholarly work that's looked at the various editions of like this book in particular, which has gone through a couple of different revisions and shown that there's been, you know, a number of changes that she's made um, that really kind of fly in the face of the idea that this is is nonfiction. Um, I mean, they found that, um, you know, she attributes you know, words to subjects that she probably crafted herself, that she assigns quotes to to one subject, and then in a different version of the book, she assigns them to another, or she changes the details in the accounts so that like, in one version of the book, they're one way, and then in another version of the book, they're a different way and totally changes the impact of the story. Oh, um, do you yeah. have any examples of that? Just do you have any? I don't have any examples off the top of my head of that. But it's there's um this this French this these French scholars um, Galia Ackerman and Frederic Lemarchand who wrote a really good article that sort of goes into the goes into the the versions of the of this book and it's like so complicated too because there's all the translations as well. That makes a lot of sense. Like mm-hmm. in some ways, I don't think that the voices are different enough to fully not have a fictional element which it doesn't I don't think it actually changes how I felt about the book because I think it was obvious that she was pulling forward certain kinds of narratives whether she got somebody to say it or not there was definitely a type of thing that a person could say in this context and then Mm -hmm. other things that a person could not say Um, and it doesn't seem possible that nobody wanted to talk about sexual violence directed toward themselves. It just doesn't, you know, um, or that it's like, if they can talk about their feet bleeding in boots that are the wrong size and talk about, mm-hmm. you know, risking their lives to wash their hair and, you know, do these, these certain things saying like, Oh, well, you know, I was still, still a girl, still care about mm-hmm. you know being pretty. Um, it seems like that they could do, they could go farther. That if they're saying those things, then, and if they're saying the things about like, you know, this is what would happen to my life if, um, if I lost a limb, say that I would, you know, I would have no future at all. Um, it seems like there have got to be stories of people who did suffer more serious disfigurement. And I think that in some ways, She's got to be avoiding those stories for a reason, you know? At least I didn't see them. Maybe I missed them, but my feeling was that there's some way that the people that she's talking to had a very intense, very horrible experience in many cases 
but they also were kind of okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, it's a sort of, I mean, I think there's questions one could ask about how Alexeyevich positions herself relative to these testimonies, but I also think that there's something, one of the, the themes that's really powerful about this book and, you know, was helpful to me in writing my own book was about this idea of silence in Soviet society. Um, and I had originally like looked at this book because I was writing about my grandmother's experience during World War II. And I was like, oh, great. Like a book about Soviet women's experiences uh, during the war. Yeah. But I realized very quickly that it was really just focused on women in combat. And my grandmother wasn't in combat. So I sort of didn't look at it very carefully, but eventually did return to it. And what I found the most useful was some of her, her more like evocative writing about just how how women in particular stayed silent about their, their experiences. I have a quote here, which I thought was really, I quote in my book, which is, she says, women are silent. They did not believe themselves. A whole world, a whole war is hidden from us. And I think there's a way in which this book also does illuminate a kind of self-censorship that was at play for a variety of reasons on a variety of levels in Soviet society, in part because on one level, it was a state-sanctioned silence because so many things were taboo, so many things couldn't be discussed. I mean, in my own family's experience, you know, people were very, very reluctant to talk about many of the details of their experience during World War II, the fact that they had, you know, family that was active in the Ukrainian underground, all the fact that they had family in the United States, all of these things were were just basically never discussed and sometimes mm -hmm. lied about. So because if you were to discuss those things, it could make you politically vulnerable. Um, you could be arrested. I mean, as we saw in the um, the anecdote about the man who was the prisoner of war in the German camp and then was sent to the gulag. Yeah. So there was a really heavy layer of state-sanctioned silence, but there was also a layer that was much more personal and much more, I think, psychological about how, and it, you know, this book is like just testimony to this, that like women did not have, did not feel entitled to an, a narrative about their own experiences. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that that came through so strongly in this book. And I think that that's the thing that's like about is like, what does it feel like to have experiences that you are sort of prevented from, have, from narrativizing? Right. And that was very much a part, unfortunately, of my grandmother's experience about the war. I mean, she had some horrible experiences that she never spoke about yeah. um, for, for, the, for the whole of her life. And so I think there is a way in which I'm, a, I'm sympathetic oh, <laughs> to yeah. Alexeyevich in the sense that like to get women who were raised in that society who experienced such terror and horror <laughs> to get them to to speak freely i i am i am, is a was a tremendous if not a possible task so it is and i think that it also like the way that she structures it where she puts all of the most horrifying stories in the first chapter and it's just <laughs> like so grueling to read and then it it really explains kind of why these people wouldn't talk about these experiences like the if the background in which the experiences are happening is this level of just complete like breakdown of meaning and of i mean everything that we all know war is like but um without all of the ways that people can sort of psychologically protect themselves against those experiences through narrative and through um, kind of joint storytelling. 
Um, like if they if they don't have that, which it, you know, this book very persuasively makes the case that they didn't have that ability to talk about um, what happened to them in the war without kind of like damaging their social standing if it w- wasn't like you know fully illegal to talk about certain experiences, and maybe those are the ones that she's leaving out. Like maybe nobody got an abortion in this war because if they said it, then you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that that feeling there's no cultural basket to hold mm-hmm. feeling that they could be proud of themselves for, you know, seeing an enemy soldier in the forest and shooting him or something like that. Like that that's not something that they would know how to like psychologically process. So it's like there's not a, a way to do that in any of the structures that they had. Or that we have now. I mean, I don't really, I don't think this is all that distant from our present time. And I also don't think that it's all that different from our our present society in some ways. Like, I don't think that there's necessarily a lot of great social structures around ground soldiers' experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that sort of struck me is, reading this book was how powerful Alexeyevich's voice was um, in relation to these narratives. I mean, sometimes it almost strikes me that her, her voice, like just that, that first chapter. And then every so often there would be just like a segment where she would write a little bit about, you know, her experience processing the stories or going to find people to speak with, but she has this amazing kind of ability to put the, these, these experiences in uh, just such powerful terms herself as a writer. I mean, she says at one point, which is basically the beginning and end of the story is like, in the center, there's always this, how unbearable and unthinkable it is to die. Yeah. And uh, her ability to just kind of cast all of this stuff I mean, the, this, the, the, the testimonies, I think, become, and I know this might in part be intentional on her part. It's like really hard to keep them straight. There's so many of them. They all kind of like meld together. You yeah. can imagine that was probably something of her own experience listening to all of these women. Um, but it's like when her voice comes through, you kind of like get oriented a little bit and you kind of, you're just like sort of poised to listen to her and hear what she has to say, having having listened to all of these people. Um, and that just strikes me as another like particularly powerful part of this book. Yeah, she definitely, she's definitely an, an insightful listener to these stories, like, you know, to, to the extent that she's shaping the stories or that, um, or that she's just listening. You definitely have a feeling of, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I know what it would be like to be in a room with her. It might be false, but I was like at the end of the book, I had a feeling. You know what it was? It was partly a feeling of optimism about the project itself. There's something kind of optimistic about the idea that um, unsayable things could be said, mm. that the world is ready to hear things, um, that feels like it has things in common with feminism in the 1970s in, mm-hmm. you know, other parts of the world also. Um, the idea that, like, if you can just say things clearly, if you can just say what has been unsaid for so long, then that alone is powerful enough to change things um, and to improve people's lives. Um, connection, yeah. And so it's like there's there's something very hopeful about the project, even if it's also just... Um, devastating to read Mm -hmm. like it's hard to imagine I mean maybe this is me being cynical but it's hard to imagine a book about um, the experiences of soldiers being that popular now Mm -hmm. because I don't think that there's a that feeling like oh well maybe if we all pay attention to something together we can change it and make it better it's like I don't know. I hope so. I don't know if I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. 
what did you end up using for your own book of this, of this, this yeah. Yeah. um i think just that idea of, of women being silent i mean i just sort of drew that in a little bit um but it just as i was reading it when i was working on the book was it was just sort of a powerful it really when i read those words i was, I was like okay i'm seeing i'm not you know i'm seeing something that this person also saw so that was that was really helpful but i didn't use it in any kind of like source way because it just didn't really didn't really align and i think another thing that's kind of missing in this book that also sort of marks it as a somewhat of a product of the soviet period is that its discussion of anti-soviet or anti-soviet activity is is really really limited so yeah. During the war, there was like a really fierce resistance, particularly in Ukraine, but also in other in the Baltics, of people fighting the the Soviet army. Um, and that is, I think, there's one mention of the Ukrainian, um, the Ukrainian um, insurgency or the Ukrainian insurgent army, but it's really left, <laughs> really, really left out. Um, it's 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 definitely. Um, it's definitely missing from this account and the complexity of that and, you know, what it meant, I think maybe not so much in Russia, but certainly in Ukraine, it's a very, um, a, a very difficult um, issue of, or at least it was until recently, I think this current war has, has really transformed memory politics in Ukraine or likely will transform memory politics in terms of making the Soviet Union much, much less popular. But in a lot of parts of Ukraine, it, you know, there was there were these competing legacies, competing narratives about um, who who were, you know, the true kind of victors of uh, not so much the victors of the war, but who were the, the, the you know, the who was the sympathetic side. Um, so. That is such a good point. That is such a good point because that's it's um, in this book. There's the feeling of like, oh, we're going to go to war, and it's sort of like, oh, we're going to defend our homeland, um, and you know, like we don't feel safe if we don't if we're not one of the ones who are if each of us, you know, <laughs> I'm saying we because it's like all of the voices, and they're all, you know, signing up, enlisting to become soldiers. There's not really a very subtle sense of what they think they're fighting for other than just the homeland you know um there definitely isn't anyone signing up for anything that could be like resisting the government or anything like that like that that is not the kind of consciousness that any of these voices seem to have which as you say suggests that she's purposefully leaving that out or purposefully not having them say, I have a sophisticated political understanding. Right. Well, I think it's, this book was written in 1985. So it would have been like totally politically unviable for her to have included those voices. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not judging her for it. It's just kind of like, like you were saying, like, what are the things that she is avoiding saying? Right. I mean, there is this, this version that we're reading um, which is the version that was published in the United States in like 2017 or something does include updates. So she did kind of revise this book after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, I think up and I think maybe this was maybe published in Russian in 2004, perhaps I'm not, it's not, it's not very clear, but um, you know, so there was sort of space for some discussion of these things, or at least a kind of qualification of them to some extent. Like when I was reading initially, you know, without much kind of context, it was like when she talked about partisans, I was like, okay, partisans for 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 which side? Because there were a lot of different partisan fighters in Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union during the war. Um, and so as you know, continued to read it. It was like obviously clear that these were partisans on behalf of the Soviet effort who are fighting the Germans. But you know, it, it is part of the complexity of World War II, and any sort of real, real, true accounting of that would need to discuss the anti-Soviet partisan feeling, particularly outside of Russia and you know Ukraine and and the Baltics, which I, I feel like this this book Belarus that does get into that terrain um it's not like it's just focused on russia so i think that that is something to at least just keep in mind when when reading but um 
also realized like it was primarily written during a very specific time when those those voices couldn't really be heard. Yeah, I mean, there, there is definitely a feeling of, I guess we're just, you know, we keep circling around saying that, like, there's so many things that she's silent about. And, and to even say this much feels radical. Mm -hmm. And then there's so much more, obviously, that is not spoken or able to be spoken in this context. I think one other thing that I would add that I think this book also gives voice to is this notion of how these experiences can really haunt people for the rest of their lives. I mean, she was, you know, as we mentioned, talking to these people 30 or 40 years after the war, maybe even later for her updates and just how shaken and shaped people were by these um, horrible, atrocious experiences. And, you know, reading this now, um, you know, especially in light of the war in Ukraine, you know, it, it connects to a few things. One is that, you know, this, the sort of the eldest generation in Ukraine, and I see this within my own family, who were born or even before or during World War II are now in the last years of their life being sent back. These, this, these horrible memories. Um, And that's just really chilling. And, and then to this idea that, you know, this is the legacy of this war in Ukraine is going to be felt, you know, for, for decades in light of, you know, the devastation. Yeah. Um, And I just, I think that that's also something that this book can, can help us kind of orient ourselves around. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. And I mean, obviously a terribly sad truth and also it's like a feature of how the book is written that it has all these little vignettes that do feel like memories, like these sort of, sometimes the stories say like, they, you know, cover many months of some circumstance, Um, but sometimes they're just these like very short, sharp moments like, somebody like breaks a child's arm to punish him for something like and I was like <gasps> um it's just so upsetting um but it's like you can totally see how if somebody saw that happen they would remember it for the rest of their lives and that they would want to say I saw this this happened you know a child asked for food and and I think you know, this was his punishment. I mean, I think for, I think particularly this, the eldest generation of Ukrainians, there was like, there was this sort of sense of progress that people had lived through so much, endured so much, but that things were getting better and not, certainly not perfect, certainly very flawed, certainly difficult still in some, in some respects, but um, I think, you know, yeah, it's it's very difficult to see how how heartbreaking it is for people to lose the sense in that kind of the last chapter of their lives that they're they're leaving their families, they're leaving their children, their grandchildren, their great grandchildren to a world that was is so broken and and violent and in a way that they they know sort of intuitively from their own earliest experiences. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Hard. I don't know. When I say that that the book seems hopeful in a way Mm -hmm. that feels like historical to me now, like not of our time, Mm -hmm. I actually, I don't want to be needlessly cynical because I also think that like the way that just so many people in Ukraine seem to have responded 
you know, to this situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not responding like that because they lack hope, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't want to publish work saying that that they're wrong, you know. I want them to right. No, we've got their back, hope, hoping for for good outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the the Ukrainian resilience has been incredible and there's so much love that's coming out through this through people loving their their communities and their their culture and their society it's it's like so powerful it's obviously commanded the world's attention um but i think you know there's there's a lot of there's so much pain that's obviously a part of that too and i think that's also an important part i think you know just talking to my my family in ukraine it's there's a way in which sort of the the conditions of war now is, have been somewhat normalized and, you know, it's people get are getting through the days and are accustomed to, you know, having very limited power and having to worry about going to bomb shelters and having to wear, you know, reflective tape when they walk the streets at night so that they don't get hit by a car because everything's dark. Um, you know, there's a way in which, you know, I can hear like that people are still living and, you know, life is happening moving forward and there are some good, good things, but it's also just so tremendously, um, limiting, um, and difficult at the same time. And, you know, the consequences of that are real too. So. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. right that's the end of our episode on the unwomanly face of war thank you to megan and to adam bear for our music as always as well as to everyone at lit hub for hosting us we love to hear from listeners so please rate and review us on apple podcasts or tweet to us at lit century pod on twitter or email us at lit century podcast at gmail.com thank you and goodbye till next month